We are continuing to think about the Sabbath. I hope as we walk through each one of these Ten Commandments that you will hear them in the context of our mission. Uh, You and I as Christians have been given a mission and we are to be living our lives on mission. Uh, We exist to live for the glory of God. We have been called to live in a way that points other people to Jesus. Uh, Sabbath rest is part of God's commands for us because we need it. If we're going to be equipped and refreshed and encouraged to live for His honor. Uh, Many people think little of Sundays because they are so neglecting living for Christ during the rest of the week that they don't feel the need to be refreshed or to be re-equipped. But it is disciples of Jesus who are living on mission in their homes, in their workplaces, in their communities, in their world. They are the ones who most feel the need for Sabbath rest, for Sabbath encouragement and refreshment, and for the blessing that God gives on the Lord's day. So with that said, let's look together again at Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. And this is the very word of God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. but The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let me tell you up front what I am hoping for us to cover tonight. Uh, First, I want to try and show you why we keep the fourth commandment on Sunday rather than on Saturday. Uh, second, I want to address the difference between keeping the, old, between keeping the Sabbath in the Old Testament and keeping the Sabbath in our day. And then finally, I want to try and offer some practical help on making the most of your Sundays uh, for the glory of God and the joy of your soul. So first, why do we keep the Sabbath on Sunday? And we're going to move through this quickly. I'm going to make six points for why the Sabbath has changed for us from Saturday observance to Sunday observance. So first, the fourth commandment teaches us that we are to work six days and then cease on a seventh day from that work to devote that day to the Lord. But it does not dictate which day is to be the seventh day. That is, the fourth commandment does not specifically dictate Saturday or Sunday or any other day. So there is nothing in the fourth commandment that prevents the day that we seek to observe the Sabbath from changing. 
And certainly God has the authority to tell us when he would want us to observe this day. When he would want us to rest from our normal labors to have a day full of him. A day of rest towards him. Well, second, Sunday was the day of Christ's resurrection. Uh, It is worth noting that all four gospel writers mention that Christ's resurrection was on a Sunday. And that is unusual. The gospel writers do not typically tell us what day of the week certain events took place. And yet Matthew and Mark and Luke and John all tell us that Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. This was something they wanted the church to know. And since festivals like Christmas and Easter are nowhere found in the New Testament, it isn't likely that they were telling us this so that we would know what day of the week to celebrate Easter. They were telling us this because to the early church, every Sunday was Easter. Every Sunday was a day set aside to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Within third, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus all appear to have taken place on Sundays. So we see this in Matthew 28, 8, Luke 24, 31, John 20, 19, John 20, 26. And isn't that interesting? Jesus, now resurrected from the dead, could appear to his disciples anytime he wanted, but he chose to only appear to them on Sundays. Moreover, we see all the disciples, except for Thomas, gathered together on the Sunday of Christ's resurrection. Then the very next Sunday, all the disciples are gathered back together again, including Thomas. And then we go to the book of Acts, and it's now the seventh Sunday since the resurrection, and the disciples are all gathered together again. The pattern seems to be that from the the day of the resurrection itself, the disciples were gathering together each Sunday and continued to do so. Fourth, on the seventh Sunday from the resurrection, the day of Pentecost, Jesus sent the empowerment of the Holy Spirit upon them. And this is a big deal because Peter quotes Joel 2 on the day of Pentecost and says Joel's prophecy is being fulfilled. So Joel's prophecy is about the day of the Lord having come upon the earth. And the day of the Lord means far more than just Sundays. There's an already and a not yet aspect to that day. But surely it's no accident that the day of the Lord first came upon this world on the Lord's day, on a Sunday. Now as the church of Christ begins to grow and thousands start coming to Christ on the day of Pentecost and then we see the disciples of Jesus meeting together. Uh, They're in the early chapters of Acts. They're meeting together not just on Sundays. They're meeting together every single day. But obviously that could not continue. Uh, People had to get back to their jobs. Uh, People had to get back and take care of their families. And so that leads us to the fifth point. 
It was the practice of the early church to gather together for worship on Sundays. The early followers of Christ gathered each Sunday to sing, to pray, to be taught, and to take the Lord's Supper. Uh, In Acts 20, verse 7, Luke says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So Luke speaks of this gathering on the first day of the week as if it was the usual pattern for these believers. This is the day that believers got together to break the bread of the Lord's Supper. And he says on this particular occasion it was Paul that brought the sermon and he preached till midnight. Any takers? Francis Nigel Lee writes, It should be observed that the disciples did not come together on the first day of the week simply so that Paul could preach to them before his departure as some claim. If the sole purpose of that gathering was to hear the apostle preach his farewell sermon to that congregation, this was something that could have been done any time during his previous week's sojourn there. From the Seventh-day Adventist point of view, one would have expected such a sermon to have been preached to the congregation on the previous day, on Saturday. And for the hastening Paul to have sailed from Troas at sunset on Saturday or at dawn on Sunday. And yet there is no trace of this, nor indeed of any meeting on Saturday whatsoever. Nor does the whole context teach that Paul simply and incidentally availed himself of the opportunity to preach to the congregation, but rather they gathered upon the first day of the week when the disciples, as usual, came together to break bread. We see that this was the practice of the early church also in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so must you do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there may be no collections when I come. So when were the Christians in Corinth, and Paul says he had already told the same thing to the churches in Galatia, so when were the Christians in Corinth and the Christians in Galatia, supposedly, assumedly, the, the Christians elsewhere, when were they supposed to come and give their offering? It was on the first day of the week. Uh, Brian Shortley says, The fact that the Holy Spirit chose the first day of the week and no other day presupposes that for the Christian church there was something unique something of abiding religious significance regarding that day. Otherwise, why would the Holy Spirit insist that it be only on the first day of the week and not the seventh or the third or the fourth? Also note that this was not just the practice of the church at Corinth, but of all the churches in Galatia. Collecting tithes for the poor on Sunday was the universal practice of the Christian church in the days of the apostles. Mount Hermon, it would be unwise for Paul to demand that these Christians, in various cities and various circumstances, all gather together to give offerings on the same day, and there was was some significant reason for them to do so. Remember, 
in those cultures, this was a work day. Sunday was a work day. These people had, had jobs to go to. This was, this was calling a, a, for them to sacrifice. We know from early Christian writings that often Christians found themselves meeting at, at, at daybreak on Sunday, seeking to fulfill this commandment while wrestling with the issue of having jobs to go to on Sundays. And yet Paul says, this is when you're to come together on the first day of the week to bring your offerings. So, so why? Why the first day of the week? Well, it's... It's our celebration day. It's the Lord's day. It's resurrection day. And that brings us to our sixth point and the one we're going to spend most of our time on here. John calls this day the Lord's day. The Lord's day. So Revelation 1.10, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. So here's John on the island of Patmos, and he receives this vision from God recorded in the book of Revelation. And when did he receive it? He received it on the Lord's Day. Now, what does that mean? Now, some people think that when John says he he received this vision on the Lord's Day, what he means is the day of the Lord, because that's just another way of saying the Lord's Day, right? The day of the Lord. And since the day of the Lord is talked about throughout the Bible as ultimately the day of God saving his people and God bringing judgment upon the wicked, uh, the last day, the final day, some people say John, because he's talking about this apocalyptic vision, is saying, on the day of the Lord, I received this vision. The problem is, with that view, Revelation teaches us a lot in those visions about things that happen before the day of the Lord, before the final day of judgment, before uh, Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. So I agree with, with most commentators of the past who said when John says the Lord's day, he means Sunday, the day of the Lord's resurrection. But why is John calling Sunday the Lord's day? Well, this is what I want to show you. Turn with me to Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. Psalm 118, verses 22 through 24. You're going to recognize these verses. They're hugely important in the New Testament and are quoted often. 118, verse 22 the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now how many times have we quoted that last verse out of context? <laughs> um we might wake up our children, and it might be a Wednesday. <laughs> and we're saying, get up, children. Today is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And you know what? That is a true statement. It's a true statement. Every day is a day that the Lord has made. And every day is a day that Christians ought to rejoice. And so there's, there's nothing wrong with saying that. 
But in Psalm 118, the day of rejoicing, the day that God has made, is the day that the rejected stone became the cornerstone. It's the day of Christ's resurrection. Uh, In fact, in Acts 4, Peter is speaking to the Sanhedrin, and he quotes this chapter as having been fulfilled in God's exaltation of Jesus Christ, an exaltation that began the moment Jesus was raised from the dead and the stone was rolled away. And so shortly says, Psalm 118 identifies the day of Christ's exaltation as a day of rejoicing, a day of gladness. He asks, were the disciples of Jesus rejoicing on the seventh day, on Saturday? Were they happy? Were they glad on the seventh day? No, absolutely not. Because on Saturday, Jesus was still dead. On Saturday, Jesus was still in the tomb. On Saturday, the disciples were still in mourning. Their leader had been put to death as a common criminal. They were living in fear, doubt, sorrow, and apparent defeat. But on Sunday... The first day of the week, Christ rose from the dead and their tears turned to joy, their sorrow to gladness, their doubt to hope, and their defeat to victory. And so the apostles didn't just willy-nilly decide to call Sunday the Lord's day. They did so because of the resurrection and because the resurrection was a fulfillment of Psalm 118. This day, this resurrection day, was the great day God had made for the salvation of His people. And they are now to rejoice and to be glad in it. And so Mount Hermon, above all, Sunday should be days of joy for us. Uh, Every Sunday ought to be Easter Sunday. Every Sunday ought to be a day where we remember that the Jesus in whom we trust was risen from the dead and exalted and sitting on the throne. And because he is there, we don't have to live in anxiety. And we don't have to live in worry. And we don't have to live in fear. It should be the sweetest day of the week. If God is your chief treasure, if God's word is more precious to you than gold, if God's people are dear to you as brothers and sisters, then what can be better than this day? In Colossians, Paul is clear that Jewish Christians who were trying to figure out what to do with their traditional Sabbath on the Saturday, right? they had been keeping the Sabbath on Saturday for so long, and, and they wanted to know, do we keep, do we keep you know, honoring Saturday and Sunday? What, what do we do? And Paul tells them in Colossians, well, you... You can keep it if you want, but if you do, you need to do so Christianly. But now the Lord's Day, Sunday, is our Christian Sabbath. It is our one in seven day of special communion with God, our our day of rest and a day of refreshment for our souls. And so I think we have very good reason to say that God in His Bible has given us warrant to move our Sabbath observance from the Saturday of the Old Covenant to Sunday of the New Covenant. It is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, I want to address the difference between keeping the Sabbath in the Old Testament and keeping the Sabbath in the New Testament. Um, I'm only going to say a 
bit about this. Uh, it's a pretty in-depth conversation. If you want to discuss it more Wednesday night at Care Group, we absolutely will. But let me point you to a few things. Um, let me start out by mentioning Numbers 15, 32 through 36, where there's a man who is caught gathering wood on the Sabbath day. He's out gathering wood. And there is no evidence that this was due to some kind of emergency. Rather, it was just a man choosing to go out and do some work on the Sabbath that he could have done on another day. Just two verses before that, we are told that those in ancient Israel who sinned presumptuously, that is, they sinned knowing that what they were doing is wrong, and yet intentionally choosing to do it anyway, uh, God had said there that they were to be cut off from His people. And then right after that, we're given this account. This Sabbath breaker seems to be given as an example of a man who intentionally sinned, though he knew what God said on the matter. The punishment given by a word from the Lord was that for gathering wood on the Sabbath, this man was to be stoned to death. That was his punishment. He was to be stoned to death for gathering wood on the Sabbath. Those kinds of prohibitions and those kinds of punishments were given to ancient Israel as a means of helping them see the importance of the fourth commandment, and to constrain their hard hearts to obedience. So why are we not to stone people who break the Sabbath today? I think we can all agree that we shouldn't. I hope we're all on the same page there. But why? Why are we not to stone people who break the Sabbath today? Well, I think the most helpful passage on understanding why the Old Testament had all of these strict rules and regulations about the Sabbath, and in the New Covenant we do not see such rules and regulations, comes in Galatians 3. So look with me there, Galatians chapter 3, uh, beginning in verse 19. Uh, the church in Galatia was being led astray. False teachers Uh, had come into their midst. A a group of people called the Judaizers were teaching a false gospel among the Christians in the region of Galatia. These false teachers were going throughout the churches of this region teaching that though we are converted to Christ by faith, we are ultimately kept saved only by keeping the Old Testament laws of God. In other words, you you come to be a Christian by believing on Jesus. And when you believe on Jesus, you are made right with God. But now that you're made right with God, you best submit to the Old Testament rules. You must now follow Old Testament laws. And if you fail to do so, then you're not going to continue to be a Christian. Uh, Thus, when missionaries were sent out to take the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth... These false teachers wanted missionaries to take the message not only of the cross and of salvation through Jesus Christ, but they also wanted these missionaries to take the Old Testament laws as a list that must be kept in order to maintain God's favor. Paul clarifies in the book of Galatians that the purpose of the law given to Moses in the Old Covenant was not to bring salvation 
God came to Abraham long before he came to Moses and made a covenant with Abraham that he would be blessed, that he would be God's child, and that covenant was not a covenant of works where Abraham had to earn God's blessing. No, God's covenant with Abraham was a a covenant of grace through faith. Abraham believed the promise of God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul's argument in the book of Galatians is that it is faith in God that saves, not works. Okay? If that's the case, if we're saved by faith alone, then what was the purpose of God coming to Abraham's descendants centuries later and giving them all these laws? If the laws aren't meant to bring salvation, what are they there for? What's what's the point of all these commandments and punishments regarding the keeping of the Sabbath day in the Old Testament? That's the kind of question being asked and answered in verse 19. So look at Galatians 3, verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So so the law was given to Abraham's children as an addition to the covenant God had made with Abraham because they were so stinking sinful. (laughs) Because they were so hard-hearted and disobedient, it was their transgressions, it was their sinfulness, it was their wickedness that prompted God to to come to Abraham's hard-hearted descendants and say, I am giving you this law. Now, by the way, notice that the way this is stated in the verse, there was law before the law was given at Mount Sinai. Because he says it was because of their transgressions that he gave them the law. You can't have transgressions without law. You can't commit sin unless there's something to commit it against, right? So this just confirms what we've seen over and over. The Ten Commandments are not the first time that people learn not to murder. The Ten Commandments were not the first time that people learn not to lie. And certainly the Ten Commandments were not the first time that people heard of the Sabbath. All of the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law that has been in place since the beginning of the world. But Abraham's descendants were so hard-hearted and disobedient, they were sinning so much that God comes and gives them law. These are what the Ten Commandments represent, a summary of God's moral law. Um, there are lots of very specific and detailed rules in the Mosaic Law. Rules that, frankly, made Israel different from every other nation. Some of those laws that we've talked about recently, about you know, not wearing garments with mixed uh, material, and not eating shellfish, and you know, all, all these things, that uh, not worshiping using visual images. I mean, these are all things that made them very different. Had God not handed down the law to Abraham's descendants, Israel would have lost her distinctiveness, She would have intermarried with the pagan peoples around them. And ultimately, there would have been no Israel. There would have been no children of Abraham from whom would come the promised Messiah. God had a plan to bring to to the world a Messiah. And he had promised that that the Messiah would come from Abraham's children. But his plan was in jeopardy in the sense that God's children were hard to even tell who they were in the sense that they look like everybody else in the world. 
And so God rescued them out of Egypt and he said, I'm making you a nation and I'm going to make you distinct and I'm going to give you rules and laws that make you look like nobody else. And how were these laws with their severe punishments going to help God's people become more obedient? We'll look at verses 24 through 26. Verses 24 through 26. Galatians 3. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So in the Old Covenant, national Israel, which was mainly an unregenerate, unborn-again people, they were like children who needed these other laws as a guardian to keep them in check. Uh, they were like children, and that children don't always understand or grasp what is best for themselves. A child may hear his parents say, don't play in the road. But the child doesn't understand that it's in their best interest not to play in the road. And that the parent is looking out for him. All the child knows is, my ball just went in the road, and I want to go get my ball. And so how does a parent help a young child? who doesn't understand what is best for him, get the point. Well, that parent might come point to the sidewalk and say to that child, you must stay on this side of the sidewalk. You are not to cross this side of the sidewalk. That command is not given because it's actually bad for the child to step to the other side of the sidewalk. Right? But that command is given to help protect that child from going out into the road. Or again, you might say to your child, look, if I see you go past this side of the sidewalk, I'm going to give you a spanking. Why? Because there's something inherently evil about the other side of the sidewalk? No, but because you're trying to protect your child who doesn't understand the danger of going in the road. Well, similarly, God gave very detailed rules and severe punishments to ancient Israel because by and large, they did not have hearts that were reborn. They were not filled with the Spirit. They were not longing to do what was right. They did not know what was best for them. They were like immature children who needed these other rules, these tighter restrictions in order to keep them from the sins of the pagan nations around them. But you would not go to your 18-year-old And say, now don't you go past that side of the sidewalk. You do, I'll give you a spanking. (laughs) Definitely wouldn't say that. Of course not. Because your 18-year-old has the maturity to understand the consequences of being in the road. Your 18-year-old has enough maturity to to know how to be careful. He, He knows to stay out of the road when a car is coming, which was the whole point from the beginning. In the New Covenant... All God's people are mature in this sense. We've been given a new heart and the Holy Spirit within us who teaches us to desire what is right. We we don't have to be told, keep the Sabbath or you'll be stoned to death. Don't pick up sticks on Sunday. Don't, Don't light a fire on Sunday. No, because we already have an instinctive desire to give God His day. To show our love to God. To commune with God. Picking up sticks was never evil. Lighting a fire on Sunday was never actually evil. But God's new covenant people are now free from those regulations. Because those regulations were there to help the old covenant people learn the main principle. 
the point of those regulations ought to be in our hearts. A desire to put aside other labors in order to set a day, to set aside a day to honor God and be with Him and, and be full of Him. So that is why the Old Testament is so restrictive in laws about the Sabbath. And it's why the New Covenant, the New Testament, is so unrestrictive. In fact, when we come to the Gospels and we see the way Jesus treats the Sabbath, we see this truth being taught by his own example. So by the time Jesus comes along, we find that that the added laws, which God had given to Israel to help her keep the Sabbath, were still not as strict as some people wanted. There have always been those who wanted to turn the Sabbath into a day of such strict regulation that it becomes utterly burdensome, wearisome, loathsome, no longer a delight. And that was the Pharisees in Jesus' day. They had come up with all kind of extra rules to help the Israelites better obey the Scriptures. And these commands went much further than even those God had given in the Old Testament. And they completely missed the purpose of the Sabbath day. For the Pharisees, doing as little as possible is what it meant to keep the Sabbath. They had a whole list of do's and don'ts, mainly don'ts, concerning the seventh day. And and they placed that as a heavy burden on the people. But Jesus came and he, he knew what the seventh day was about, the Sabbath day. It was a day meant to cease from labors in order to honor God, worship God, serve God, commune with God. It's not a day to do nothing, It's a day to to work in the service of God. It's a day to bless God and to be blessed by God, a day to to bless God's people. And so this is what Christ did on his Sabbath days, and it got him in trouble with the Pharisees. He would go and he he would heal people on the Sabbath day. He would go and he would do good works on the Sabbath day. Pharisees didn't like it, but Jesus had the point. This was a day for putting aside other callings, To love God, serve God, and honor God. It is a Sabbath to be kept to the Lord your God. So I wish I had more time, but let me just note that in the life of our Lord Jesus, we see three kinds of work that ought to be done on the Sabbath. Three kinds of work that ought to be done on the Sabbath. And these have been observed by Christians for centuries. So this is not uh, Justin's teaching here now. I am relying on, on many, many centuries of Christians who have known these terms. So first, there are what we call works of piety. Works of piety, P-I-E-T-Y. Um, Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And there he would have heard the word of God. He would have prayed. He would have praised God. He would have participated in God's worship. These are acts which require time and energy and effort. But they are not only allowed on the Sabbath, they are part of what makes the Sabbath the Sabbath. It's what we're called to do on this day. Uh, Frankly, a pastor works harder on the Sabbath day than any other day of the week. Is his work sinful? I hope not, right? Works of worship, works of piety are entirely appropriate on the Lord's day. And I hope worship is an activity for you. It's not meant to be passive. Um, You know, I I heard somebody say this week that, that slouching in worship is an abomination to God. Meaning, if we think of worship as something where we just sit and passively receive, that's not, that's not what the Sabbath day is about. 
right? Worship is an activity. We engage in it. Whether it's us singing, whether it's us praying, whether it's listening intently to the sermon, we actively work on the Sabbath. We have works of piety, and that's right, and that's receiving the blessing of God. Well, then second, the Sabbath day is a day for works of mercy. A day for works of mercy. The Pharisees were enraged that Christ would heal a man on the Sabbath. And yet the Sabbath is all about serving God by serving others. Those who bear his image and especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, This is a day to be an encouragement to your fellow believers, both during our corporate gatherings, but also through, through visits or hospitality or phone calls. Uh, It's also certainly appropriate to use your Sunday afternoons for works of mercy towards those who are not Christians. Uh, Maybe you have uh, somebody new in your neighborhood and you've been meaning for weeks now to go knock on their door and just introduce yourself. Well, hey, Sunday afternoon, here's your chance. Go do that. That, That's honoring to God. Uh, Witnessing door-to-door on a Sunday afternoon, visiting residents of a nursing home or patients in a hospital. Those are very appropriate works of mercy that we can do on Sundays. And then third, let us not miss that on the Sabbath, we will still need to do the works of necessity. The works of necessity, N-E-C-E-S-S-I-T-Y. It was not wrong for the disciples to pluck grain to eat. On the Sabbath, because we still have to eat on Sundays. Uh, We still need to take showers and be clean on Sundays. We still need to take care of emergencies that come our way on Sundays. There are men and women who will need to work on Sundays because their work is a work of necessity doctors, nurses, policemen. Uh, We ought to honor them and thank them for the work that they do, even when it requires them to be away on a Sunday. We need to be careful that we don't call something a necessity that isn't. And if we can avoid working on Sundays, we probably should. We should actively work to to set that day apart as often as we can. But there are works of necessity to be done on the Sabbath, and those are absolutely appropriate. Well, finally, let me offer some counsel for keeping the Sabbath. Number one, prepare for the Lord's day. Prepare for the Lord's day. You will not be able to make good use of your Sundays and devote them to the Lord if you have not made preparations. And so parents, teach your kids to do their weekend homework before Sunday. Uh, Adults, make sure that you've done other kinds of work that need to be done by Sunday so that you can truly spend that day doing things that delight your soul in God. Uh, Consider doing all you can to make Sunday a day of refreshment for your soul as you serve the Lord. There's all kinds of practical things you can do. None of these these are thus saith the Lord. These are just suggestions. But uh, ironing your clothes on Saturday night so that Sunday morning isn't quite so hectic and stressful. Uh, Going ahead and cooking on Saturday evening and just doing leftovers on Sunday so that you don't get stuck in the kitchen uh, when you could be doing other things. Uh, Don't stay up too late on Saturdays uh, so that you get to church on Sunday and you find that you're not able to actively engage in, in worship. It's all part of preparing. Number two, be with God's people on His day. 
Even when you're out of town or on vacation, seek to be with God's people on his day. One way to encourage and bless God's people on the Lord day is just by your presence when you worship with them. By the way, do you know how many small churches there are out there that would just get a kick of having you stop in on your vacation and worship with them? It would, it would, it would be a blessing from God to them to have you step in and worship with them on that Sunday. Uh, We all know that it's discouraging when Christians meet and they are few in number and they see, oh, you know, so many of us are missing today. So if at all possible, be with God's people on the Lord's day. Uh, Psalm 122.1, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Uh, Psalm 84.10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Does your heart resonate with that? One day in your courts, God, one day surrounded by your word and your people and your worship communing corporately with you. It's better than a thousand Mondays. That's easy easy to say that one. Is it better than a thousand Fridays? Number three, practice Christian liberty in this matter of Sabbath keeping. Practice Christian liberty in this matter of Sabbath keeping. Because it's not going to look the same for each person and each family in our church. Uh, Some in here may decide that for their family, one of the ways that we're going to make Sunday special and honoring to God is we're not going to do this on Sunday. And another family is going to say, we're going to do that on Sunday. We've got to be careful not to make judgments of one another about those things. Uh, we don't want to, uh, 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 to look at each other in a condemning way. Rather, we want to practice Christian liberty. And we want to encourage one another simply to make the best use of the day possible. So just for one example, one family may say that because they watch a lot of television during the other days of the week, they're not going to do that on Sunday. Uh, they want to cease from that, that activity and, and do something that's more profitable on the Lord's Day. Yet another felt family may say, you know what, we don't watch TV hardly at all during the week. But on Sunday afternoons, we're going to have family movie time. And we're going to watch movies like Sergeant York that teach valuable lessons. Yeah, that was for you, Brad. And, uh, and, and we're going you know, we're we're to talk through these movies. And we're going to engage and we're going to enjoy them together as, as a family. Well, should the family that doesn't watch TV on Sundays come and judge the one that's that's choosing to watch TV on Sundays? No, of, of course not, right? Uh, we we got to be careful about, you know, one family accusing the other of being legalistic or the other one accusing that one of being licentious. No, don't, don't do that. It's not helpful. Um, in family situations, men, talk to your wives. Work together on what will be good ways for your family to make the most of this day. Men, lead the way in this in your homes. Well, fourth and finally, never, ever, ever forget that the Sabbath is mainly a day for you to grow in your faith and your love towards Jesus. The Lord's day is all about the Lord. It's all about Christ. Uh, The Lord's supper is all about remembering Christ and loving Him and worshiping Him and professing Him in the, in, the, in the bread and the cup. The Lord's Supper is all centered on Christ. The Lord's Day is no different. It's meant to be all centered on Him. So find ways to center your Sunday on Jesus. Now, of course, 
I hope every day of your life is centered on Jesus. I hope that as you're fulfilling your callings on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, that you're doing that heartily as unto the Lord. But we ought to look for ways to serve Christ in unique and soul-refreshing ways on Sundays. So love your Savior. Trust your Savior. Fellowship with your Savior. And let Jesus be the center of the way that you spend your Sundays. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.